Welcome to episode 9 of the Language Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephen Wilson, and this is a podcast about the scientific study of language and the brain. In this episode, I'm going to try something new. This episode is a conference recap. I talk with three of my friends and colleagues, Maya Henry, Andrew DeMarco, and Sarah Schneck, immediately after we had all attended the Clinical Aphasiology Conference. This was the 50th anniversary meeting of this legendary conference, and it took place virtually due to the pandemic. We tried to keep in mind that our conversation would be listened to mostly by people who hadn't gone to the conference, and I hope we're able to make the discussion accessible, but you can be the judge of that. We're going to talk about Will Evans and Rob Kavanaugh's work on identifying the active ingredients of aphasia treatment, Dave Copland's keynote talk on learning and relearning in aphasia, in particular predicting treatment outcomes based on patients' initial performance and the potential value of gamifying aphasia treatments, making them more fun and engaging. We're going to talk about Stephen Bedrick's talk on using machine learning and natural language processing to classify paraphasic errors, uh, Peggy Blake's systematic review of prosodic deficits in patients with right and left hemisphere damage, and Miranda Rose's talk on the COMPARE trial, which she led, that's a large clinical trial comparing two different aphasia treatments as well as usual care in Australia and New Zealand. We're also going to talk about what we think about virtual conferences and their future. Okay, let's get to it. I'll get you all to introduce yourselves. Um, I'll start with you, Maya. So um, can you tell our listeners like about yourself, where you are, and what you do? Sure. I'm Maya Henry. I'm an associate professor in speech-language hearing sciences and neurology at the University of Texas in Austin, um, and I direct the Aphasia Research and Treatment Lab at UT. All right. And Andrew? I'm Andrew DeMarco. I'm a postdoc um, in the Cognitive Recovery Lab at Georgetown University. And Sarah? Um, I'm Sarah Schneck, and I'm a PhD student in the Language Neuroscience Lab with Stephen, actually, at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, wonderful. So the idea today was to kind of just talk about this conference that we've just been to. The first question, maybe the maybe the easiest one, is like, what was your favorite presentation at the conference? And whatever your favorite presentation was, if you can just tell us about it, why you liked it. Does anybody want to go first? I'll jump in. All right, Sarah. Um, my favorite presentation was a poster, actually. Um, it was by Rob Cavanaugh with Will Evans's group out of Pittsburgh. Um, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice. Um, but the basic idea was that I understood it was they took um, a treatment, a semantic treatment, and broke it down into its different components and then correlated performance on those components with outcome um, with the goal of trying to find what the active ingredient of the treatment may be. Um, and I think this is important because I did some reading during my qualifying exam last year on kind of how speech pathology falls behind some other disciplines on prescribing, right? Kind of other disciplines are a little bit better at, you know, I want to prescribe this treatment for this long, um, this dose, um, and I feel good about that because of X active ingredients. Um, and we're just not quite there yet with speech pathology. And so I really respect, you know, Will Evans's group and kind of how they're really taking that by the horns and trying to figure out what about these treatments may be the active ingredient, and then how can we do further experiments to better hone in on um, how we can make that active ingredient work for more people. Um, so that was my favorite. Cool. Did you guys um, see that poster? I, I didn't see the, the poster, but I, I saw Will give his talk, which was um, related to the poster. 
and I, I thought it was an excellent talk. Um, uh, what I liked about it was was kind of what Sarah was saying, where they're they're doing this treatment and they're decomposing it and collecting real time um, data from the patient in sort of a, a gamified setting. And what's really exciting about it is that it seems like they're looking to discover measures from the data that they're collecting that are useful to predict treatment outcomes. And I think the the, uh, the fact that they're uh, searching for measures that are useful is exciting because I think that's what we need. Yeah, I agree. The, the talk was great. And I've seen Will talk about his BEARS framework before. Um, you know, everybody needs a cute acronym. Uh, but but in yeah, I really like the 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 conceptual framework, and I think it it's an important line of thinking for people who work with patients that there is this sort of sweet spot where people should kind of give up trying, <laughs> balancing effort, right, and uh, and trying to quantify that, understand it better, and and give our patients a way to. Um, to, 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 to kind of help with that dis- decision-making, make it overt. I think that's cool. And Andrew, was that going to be your pick of your well, it was presentation up there. at the I conference? Think, um, it was going to be my pick. Um, there was a poster that was also, I thought was really interesting um, that I, I didn't get to visit, but, but did look at and I thought was really creative, but that was going to be my top pick. And how about you, Maya? Um, I, you know, you have, favorite presentations for different reasons. And I had several that I really enjoyed and took a lot from. Um, I really liked the, the Copland talk. Um, it, it really resonated me on, with me on several levels. So for, for those who weren't in attendance, the, the talk was about learning and relearning in aphasia um, and kind of thinking about how aphasia treatment can prime both existing representations and or draw upon mechanisms that support new word learning. And, and so I really appreciated the, the discussion around that. Um, and, and actually, some of the things that I found most intriguing, though, about, about that talk were maybe kind of minor points. Um, so one related to thinking about predicting treatment outcomes based on initial performance of patients, which is something that I'm super interested in. So if we could do something with people that we're about to embark on treatment with um, at the pretreatment stage, that's going to tell us how they're going to do in the context of that type of training, it would be a way to really maximize efficiency. So priming tasks or facilitation tasks, things that are really obviously kind of closely related to the type of things that are going to be done in treatment. Um, and then I really like, yeah, I'll just, just to hop yeah, in there. Ahead. Like, I mean, it really kind of shocked me. Like, I think he said something like he could explain 85% of the variance and how the treatment was going to go based on the first little bit of it. Right. And, and that's just kind of, um, that's very useful, right? I mean, it kind of gives you this license to like, just try different things and see which one works because it, because the initial is probably going to tell you a lot about how it's going to go. And it, you know, it's the thing that clinicians do in reality. We do try things and, and abandon things that don't seem to be going anywhere. 
Um, of course, in the context of research, you establish a protocol and, and you stick with it and you have responders and non-responders and you try to learn something about that after the fact. But, um, you know, how much more efficient and helpful to develop an algorithm that clinicians could use to, to help with that initial decision making. Um, yeah, it's something we're trying to figure out um, with regard to the interventions that we're doing. Yeah. And um, did you have, were you going to name all of them? I was just going to say that, yeah, well, with his talk, the idea that, so he said therapy needs to be more fun. I just totally perked up at that. Uh, I mean, I, it's something I think about all the time and especially at conferences like this, where you see, you know, still shots of what people are doing with patients. And, and this includes the, the interventions that we do, which are very drill-based, but, but basically what we're asking patients to engage in is incredibly repetitive, incredibly boring, unmotivating, drill-based stuff that doesn't have anything to do with real-world communication for the most part, uh, at least in restitutive interventions, um, not so much obviously in, in um, group interventions or those that are more focused on, on functional communication. But it made me think of this talk I went to by John Krakauer, who, who's at Hopkins and does motor rehabilitation. You may be mm -hmm. familiar with him, but he's got yeah. this, this dolphin <laughs> that he has people uh, who are, you know, in, who are hemiparetic. They, they, they like play this video game where they, they have that there's bandit, the magic dolphin. And they're like swimming around with this dolphin and, <laughs> you know, working out their hemiparetic limb in the process. And I just think we need to, we need to take that framework and all the, you know, advances in gamification in general, and bring that to aphasia treatment and create interventions that people want to engage with instead of having to try to convince them to be compliant. That's such a great point. I mean, like, it must be possible. I mean, why are people playing, like, I guess it's not anymore, but like Candy Crush on their phone. Like, you know, you'll just see people like just obsessively playing Candy Crush. Like, it's obviously possible to design repetitive, boring things that people are really into. Well, we did a, we did a TDCS. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, you look around, they're everywhere. Sorry, Andrew. That's okay. Yeah, we, we did a TDCS trial a couple of years ago, and our first attempt at it was to to build a, a game to gamify a treatment. And I did that and it was incredibly onerous to build a game. And it turns out that it worked okay. But um, I think it showed me that a, a big gap might be that you need somebody who can build this game. I mean, I, I talked to like a friend of mine who is, he lives in San Francisco and does gaming and works for one of these uh, mobile app um, game development companies. And it's like an, an equation for them. It's an algorithm for them to like, you know, game themselves, game the, the user reward system. And so I tried to follow as many recommendations of his as I could, but I feel like, you know, having a developer, having somebody dedicated to building that would have just allowed me to focus on the actual content as opposed to, you know, trying to fix problems every, every day that had the user, you know, QA testing. Right. I mean, testing. yeah. So there's like programming issues and like kind of tech issues, but there's also like what you're kind of alluding to, like known information about like you know gaming the dopamine system from this from this whole other branch that we've n never thought of as having anything to do with what we do. And you, you know, you, your ideas are like 
that we could probably merge these fields pretty profitably. And it sounds like that's... No doubt. You look at the proliferation of apps that are out there for, for aphasia rehabilitation, and they're just sad. And yet patients are desperate to buy them. Like people are asking me all the time, what app should I buy? Right. So people are getting all into Duolingo, right? Um, mm -hmm. As far as I can tell. I mean, I, I sort of did it for a day or two, and I was like, I don't know. I, I'm not very susceptible to this stuff for some reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, like people get it... Like, you could make a Duolingo for aphasia because I don't think that like relearning language is the same thing as learning a second language, but, but you could, you could bring similar principles to bear. Right. Yeah. And just think about like, you know, that there's something, uh, to be said for, for having virtual like avatars either virtual therapists or virtual like mouth models. If you're doing speech entrainment kinds of things and, and that's really prohibitive for many clinicians to, to find, to have a mouth model and to, to have the setup to record somebody's face. But you look at these like social media influence avatars and they look like real humans, their mouths move and they, they're incredibly realistic. So like the technology is there to go from the thing that the patient wants to practice saying to having some avatar say it to them and, and they can speak along with it. I mean, we've got all the pieces of this technology. Somebody just needs to put them together. Okay, Maya, what's another one of your favorites? Another one of my favorites was Stephen Bedrick's talk that he gave on behalf of their whole group. Um, so basically, you know, looking at ways to, to automatize using NLP, um, uh, classification of different error types, um, or sorry, different types of paraphasias. Um, and I was interested in it in part because of the problem that they're trying to solve, but in part just because I think, well, he was, he's a great speaker and he's a, he's a, a computer scientist who, who studies language a kind of a, a medical informatics type. And I just, as I was listening to him speak and I'd never heard him speak before, I was thinking, I want to take classes from this guy on NLP. It's something that I'm trying to learn about. And he just made, he made things really clear. So I, I really appreciated the discussion of the process as much as of the findings. Um, and again, they're trying to arrive at the best algorithm. Um, and I, I just thought it was a really great combination of, of savvy with regard to the, the computational methods, but also like on his part, a really, he, he seems to have a really great understanding of an appreciation for aphasia and for language. And so that like, I'm, I'm working with computational linguists who are trying to help us with some NLP stuff and, um, and they're, they're great, but they don't understand aphasia at all. And uh -huh. so I'm, I'm listening to, to, Dr. Bedrick talk and thinking, you know, this is, I've learned so much just in this 15 minutes. Um, so I really thought that was a great talk as well. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it that. too. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. What did you like about it, Sarah? I really liked how he kind of went over his whole journey since the last time, I guess he presented kind of saying, these are problems that came up. This was our exact thought process. This is what we looked into. And this is what you know, resulted from that. Um, and like Maya, you said, even though I know nothing about these interfaces, um, you felt like you could follow along with him. Um, and I think that's a testament to how he broke it down, um, which was really neat. I, I think the one that I liked the most was Peggy Blake's talk about 
um, a systematic review of studies of prosody in, in right hemisphere and left hemisphere damage um, because it obviously it was sort of, I felt a kinship with her because we've been doing our own systematic review for the last three years. And it, it seemed like they had similarly taken on a huge literature and gone through it in a, you know, really with attention to methodological rigor and came to sort of similar conclusions that like, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of issues that needed to be dealt with before we could move forward. Um, but also kind of like, you know, there were, there were some clear patterns that came out of it. Like it became pretty apparent that right hemisphere patients, right hemisphere damaged patients have, you know, very consistent impairments, especially in, in, um, expressive prosody. And, you know, just that was, that was just very compellingly demonstrated by their analysis. I'm interrupting from the future to clarify that what I meant to say here was that right hemisphere damaged patients have deficits in expressive emotional prosody, but apparently not in expressive linguistic prosody. Peggy Blake and her colleagues made that distinction clear, and it's obviously a really important one. Okay, back to the conversation. And yeah, I just thought the whole thing was very uh, systematic in the best possible way. I completely agree. I thought that was an excellent talk. And also working on a systematic review for the last, I don't want to tell you how many years of intervention research in PPA and PPAOS. I, you know, I thought of this during, during Sarah's talk and at your poster as well. And when I read your, your paper, the, the incredible amount of work that goes into um, a review like that. Uh, I don't think you can appreciate that until you've done one yourself, but especially in, in right hemisphere disorders where, you know, we've had such a, a woeful lack of research addressing the nature and neural bases and this sense that maybe the rigor of the research was, was not where it could be to have somebody comb through the literature in that careful way and tell us what, what we can, you know, what we can believe in and what we need to do better is that's the sort of thing that really moves the field forward. And it was just presented incredibly clearly. Um, and and be, like I said, because I'm working on a systematic review right now, appreciate the, me- the, the methodological details and felt like I learned a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I liked it that, you know, at the end of it, she was able to like draw actual conclusions. Um, like for instance, she said something and I, and I wrote it down as a quote. She said, you know, we shouldn't waste time in right hemisphere damage patients screening for linguistic prosody deficits. I mean, that's a very strong statement saying that it's so clear that, that right hemisphere damage doesn't impair linguistic prosody, only emotional prosody. It's so clear that we shouldn't waste time even assessing it. I just think it's impressive that you can come away so confident as to say something like that. Yeah, I totally agree. One other talk I would mention though, is Miranda Rose's talk, uh, that it's it was really impressive to me because it's such a super clean and well-designed clinical trial that was asking a question that I care about um, and 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 a question that our field has has grappled with. So the the trial um, but it was basically a big multi-site RCT looking at a multimodal treatment versus a, a constraint induced intervention. And um, also versus normal care. And also versus normal care. That's right. So just for yeah. kind of just for kind of filling in background, this is called the Compare trial. It was done in Australia and New Zealand, two hundred sixteen participants, and I. It was also in my top sort of echelon of um, presentations that I 
thought about talking about. So yeah, go on. Oh no, thanks for the for the details. Um, just really, again, really helpful and clear delineation of their methodolo- methodology. Um, that you know, I I and there was a lot of discussion at the conference around RCTs and their role in in aphasia treatment and aphasia treatment research, including kind of philosophical aspects, you know, one of the keynotes, um, Julian Rice, and and some back and forth about whether we should be conducting RCTs. And and I've, you know, in teaching students about aphasia treatment research and the literature, the evidence base, um, you know, have my students uh, read and, and evaluate treatment research papers. And one of the, the weaknesses that they always identify um, is when we have a small N or a single participant design. And so I spend a lot of time trying to help them to understand that the, those studies can be rigorous and are important, especially given that they are the, the probably the bulk of our, our intervention research. And, you know, a well-controlled single, single participant study is, is a powerful thing. Um, however, uh, you know, we all recognize that we need to be moving toward conducting big studies, especially, in, and Julius Fridrickson made the point that RCTs are in part the way we get the attention of the medical community. Um, and, and in progressive aphasia, trying to, to convince neurologists and, and, you know, other treating clinicians that they should refer patients to us is something we really need to move the needle on. So, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about you know, the, the potential for RCTs in, in primary progressive aphasia, but questions about like, what do you randomize, you know, a no treatment or a delayed treatment condition doesn't make any sense. And so obviously a, a a study like this one, um, might make a lot of sense comparing different types of intervention or potentially different dosages. Um, and so, you know, I was taking careful notes and we'll, we'll carefully review their, their published protocols and their statistical analyses. And, just think there's a, this is like a, a really super well done RCT from what I can, from what I could see in the talk. Um, and, and then, you know, yeah, we had a I bit of an exchange that, about their primary, primary outcome measure. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, yeah, we'll get right to that. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think the quality of it was like very clear. Right. And I actually did, I took a look at the, a couple of the publications they've done along the way of, you know, the, they published the, the design they publish the analysis plan so like all of this stuff is set in stone you know there's no funny business um you know you asked them about using the western aphasia battery aq as the outcome measure um and so yeah i mean i guess we should mention for those that um didn't see miranda's talk um the primary outcome measure is the western aphasia battery aq is that right it's the aq mm-hmm. and um and it wasn't there was not a significant effect um of either one treatment versus the other or of or of either of them versus usual care um but they did see um positive effects on some of their secondary measures um that understandably they then would you know like to spend more focus on when your primary outcome didn't come out the way you were hoping but what did you think about that like did you think that the maybe the AQ wasn't the greatest choice of a primary outcome measure I did not think so. Um, I would be very well, and I, I, I guess I, I just when when she put up the slide that basically said this trial definitively proves, and I think it was a very strong statement that 
these interventions do not reduce aphasia severity in chronic aphasia. I thought, oh my gosh, some people are going to walk away from this and that's all they will have heard. And some people will read that paper and that's all they will take away from it. And, you know, basically the message that this treatment doesn't work, um, which really wasn't the finding, right? Um, Or especially when you started to look at the comparative utility of of the the different interventions and and relative to usual care. Uh, But I also think that, you know, we have to obviously be super careful about selecting our outcome measures. Um, They need to to capture the things that we're training. And so just thinking about like training people on multimodal communication, the WAB doesn't capture any of that, you know? So if somebody's using writing, drawing, gesture, or whatever to supplement their spoken communication, it just wouldn't be captured there. Um, And it could be potentially more uh, sensitive to outcomes after constraint-induced uh, aphasia treatment, but but um, I just think that that to meet that that bar for uh, a significant change on the WAB, I can't remember how many points. Five it is. points. Five, would, point, five, five points. points. That would be a lot. That would be a lot. Yeah. Um, and 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 we don't see significant change on the WAB in patients who have clearly shown. We use the WAB just to sort of establish where language is over the different phases of a study, but not as an outcome measure, because I've, I've always assumed it wouldn't be sensitive. Well, apparently you were right. Um, Sarah, Andrew, did you guys see that compare trial presentation? I remember the, uh, the, the, the exact statement, uh, the definitively proves statement. Yeah. But in an Australian accent. Which makes it more, more, it, it makes there. it more definitive, actually, when you say something in an Australian accent. <laughs> what, what did you think of the talk, Sarah? Um, I thought it was very interesting. Um, I had a lot of similar takeaways to what has been said. I don't know if I have anything to specifically add. Why well, would I want to know how can we do the do similar uh, similarly powered and sized work in the U.S.? What's the mechanism to support a trial like that? Yeah, like all the aphasiologists in Australia work together, basically. I think you know you have to remember Australia is like approximately the population of Texas, so it's kind of like equivalent to a big U.S. state. So just imagine that you got together with all the people in your state and just like, hey, let's let's collaborate. That's that's how they do it. It's collaboration, yeah. And I think there, you know, there are some some collaborations underway where they're doing larger trials, C Star, etc. So how do we feel about um, virtual conferences? This this one or virtual virtual conferences in general? What do you think? What do you think, Maya? I've been to several now, and I thought this virtual com- conference went off as seamlessly as any. And I I thought the program was really well put together. Um, I've been a CAC attendee for I think ten different conferences. And my first one being in 2007 in Scottsdale, and and at CAC everybody uh-huh. likes to talk about how many com- how many CACs they've been to, and of course this was the 50th anniversary. This is you know historically a really small conference where you can only go if you're presenting, um, and everybody kind of knows everybody. And when I first started going to the meeting. Um, the, the, the organizers and kind of the old guard were people who were 
my mentors then, and now that generation has kind of stepped up and is leading the conference. And so you don't always see all of those people at the conferences anymore, like the people from the slideshow. Um, I don't know if any of you saw the, the slideshow. It, it was the 50th yeah. anniversary, as I said, for those who weren't there. That was one of my one of my favorite parts of the conference. It was really um, maybe a little corny, but it it really uh, highlighted what what you miss at a virtual yeah. conference, which is actually making these memories. It's like electric. It's there's nothing nothing that can replace the that um, that excitement and urgency when you're around these people you never get to see. Yeah, and CAC is because it's a small kind of community um, and really focused on trainees and and mentees and there's this mentorship component and usually there's a whole mentorship like program for the NIDCD fellows with special meals they go to and they meet with their mentors and talks of junior people are always front and center and then there are these long discussion periods for exchange of information that's a whole different experience in person and you just can't recreate that online and it's one of the things that is unique to CAC Um, And I loved that they built in the slideshow and that Audrey dropped in and that Bruce Porch made an appearance. I mean, that was those were all very CAC things to do. So I really think the organizers did everything that they could to recreate that. But I miss seeing my friends, Um, the pros, you know, I didn't have to up and leave my family for a week. But the cons, my family hasn't seen me that much this week. And I didn't get to, like, have a beer with Stephen. And that's like, it's not the same, is it? No, it's not. It's just not the same. And those interstitial conversations where like, it's, that's, that's everything you eating, you're eating breakfast next to somebody and, and you start talking about something that you both think is interesting. And two years later, it's a project you're collaborating on. I mean, that is incredibly valuable and also fun. What did you think, Sarah? I was just overall impressed of how seamless it went off. Um, on the Andrew, I know you had the opportunity to be a speaker as well. And I thought that aspect, I mean, kind of the behind the scenes of that, you enter this back door as they called it. And um, if you were a speaker in that session, it was all the speakers and then the moderator and then um, a tech person from IMS. And I just found that a very um, strong way of doing that just in case anything, you know, went went awry, which it didn't when I was there, but I had full confidence in the tech guy. He was very Zen and you could just tell that if something were to go wrong, he could wave a magic wand and he was going to get your slides up there. He was going to get your internet back to working. And I just thought that was um, very impressive. And from the attendee side, I thought it was really neat how seamless they switched from presenters. um, And uh, you didn't really realize all that went into it. And it was just really cool. What do you think, Stephen? I mean, I think you spoke very eloquently about the the missing pieces that make conferences like valuable. Um, and and I've been thinking. I mean, I and I do. I mean, I you know totally agree with you guys too that like um, you know the organizers, you know, um, Will Hula and um, Stacy Raymer um, did everything like that you could possibly do to make this as good as it could be, and it was you know as good as. I think it's, you know, as good as a virtual conference could be. Um, but yeah, like, um, I'm eager to get back to in-person conferences and, and I, you know, people are raising questions about, um, you know, issues like access, right? I mean, like it is, it's expensive to go to conferences. Um, and, um, 
you know, there's the environmental costs, right, of flying, you know, jet planes all over the world. I mean, and many people are saying, oh, you know, we should do um, virtual conferences forever now. And I'm like, well, be careful here. Like, this is, I don't know, if I got into this science thing to sit at a Zoom screen uh, all the time. Um, but at the same time, like, those are, those are legitimate things to worry about, right? Do you, what do you guys think? I think those are definitely legitimate things to worry about. And, 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 you know, the issue of access, you look at CAC in a, in a typical year in person, it's a very white conference. And I of course don't know who was in the audience at this year's conference, but it was definitely a bigger audience than usual. I know that there were, there had to, I know that there were practicing clinicians because they emailed me you know, people that I know who work in the field um, to say, hey, you know, I'm at CAC too. And uh, so there were definitely people in attendance who wouldn't have been there otherwise. CAC can be an ex a very expensive conference because it's long. It's the better part of a week. And you often fly to places that are a little bit out of the way, like Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And so it's quite expensive. And I'm sure that's prohibitive to people. And I'm sure that it affects who's able to show up. I would love to see more representation at CAC and really all of our meetings from people from diverse backgrounds. I mean, of course, that's a science problem, not just a conference problem. Um, but I, I do wonder about a potential hybrid option. Um, could we not stream people in and stream ourselves out? Would that detract from the experience in some way? Yeah, I think everything's worth considering about everything's worth considering options. Um, but I do think it would detract. I mean, I, I think that like something about a conference is like you're there with that group at that time for that thing. Like that's your focus, you know? So you're and saying it's, it's like summer camp or Las Vegas. Yeah. Like what stays, exactly. What happens at CAC stays at CAC. As soon as you open it to the outside world. Yeah. What, what exactly, Andrew? Um, as soon as you open it up and make it not, it's no longer intimate. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, not that conferences, Conferences shouldn't be that intimate. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like couldn't you record the talks and basically get from those recordings what we've gotten as, or most of what we've gotten as virtual attendees to a virtual talk or to a, rather to a virtual conference? Yeah, maybe that's the right thing. Like you don't try and do it in real time. You just record the talks and make them available at least. I mean, that doesn't, halt, that doesn't certainly solve all of the access issues, but... It's better than nothing. I think that makes sense. And also, I mean, who would have ever thought that we would be doing virtual conferences just a year or two ago? And so, I mean, who knows what the virtual conference technology will be in, in next year, two years or three years or five years. So maybe, um, you know, there'll be telepresence robots. I mean, I'm not even kidding. Or some really immersive, convincing virtual reality where you can sort of shortcut the access problem to some extent by allowing somebody to be there in person without needing to travel there in person uh, beyond just being over a screen in some, in some you know, heretofore un, uncreated um, technology. Yeah, it's possible, huh? It's possible. I, I still think that getting on that airplane is a part of it because you sort of like with CAC, it always, it typically happens right after the end of the semester. And so you're sort of, sh this year it was 
during the end of the semester, which was particularly challenging. Um, but you sort of shed the semester, you get on an airplane, you go somewhere else and you immerse yourself in that experience. And, and I feel like I have to keep talking about what CAC usually is because I'm the, like the old hat CAC person um, on this podcast. But um, usually there's a Friday afternoon off and these conferences are held in places where you want to go out and do things outdoors, rafting or hiking, or like the last one that happened in person was in, um, was, was right next to Glacier National Park in Whitefish, Montana. It was incredible. Right, yeah. I mean, I went hiking with some of these folks and like, I just don't know that VR is going to get us there. Yeah. And like you guys have kind of alluded to, too, just the idea of, completely immersing yourself, I think does have benefit. And while it was a perk that you could kind of keep some parts of your normal everyday life going this week, I think it a little bit kept you from being completely focused and just the kind of percolating that goes on in between talks, because that's all you have to think about. And that's all you're talking about with the people around you is lost when you're seeing people of your everyday life and not talking about those topics um, or your everyday duties or whatever. Well said. Yeah. Well, I think that we've spent like a whole week on Zoom. So we probably are all Zoomed out and we should get back to our friends and family. And uh, um, thank you all for having this chat with me. Of course. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Take care. I'll see you guys soon. Yeah. Have a good Friday evening. It's good to see you all. It's fun to catch up. Yes. You too. Yeah, this has been this has been really fun. Okay, well, that's it for episode nine. Thanks for listening. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on whether this conference recap episode was useful in sharing some of the highlights of the conference as we saw them. Next episode, we'll be back to the typical one-on-one interview format, and I hope you'll be back to check it out. See you next time. <laughs>